Welcome to the Beyond Medicine Podcast. My name is Rami Webby, and I'm your host. In this podcast, we bring you inspiring leaders from across the medical landscape and explore the cutting edge of science and medicine. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I know you're probably wondering, oh, well, haven't seen them in a while. You're right. And we took a little hiatus to kind of refocus, redirect ourselves, and figure out a path forward for Beyond Medicine. As you know, career changes and trying to figure out how this podcast really fits into my goals for our community, for myself, for our audience. That's taking a little bit of stepping back and really rethinking and reanalyzing what's the best path forward. And one of the things I really enjoy doing is talking to people from our community, uh, especially physicians, talking about the struggles in medicine, talking about an actual path forward and One of the things I'm also really passionate about doing is bridging this gap that's between sort of this digital health community and our clinical community. And recently when I was at the Vive conference or Vive conference, however you say it, if you are familiar, it's a huge digital health conference, lots of people. And while I was there, I walked up and down these conference halls and I saw maybe just a small handful of doctors while I was there. And it made me realize out of the, there was thousands, maybe 10,000 people at this, at this conference, building products for physicians, building products for patients. And I was like, wow, we're missing a huge piece of the puzzle here. We really need our community, our clinical community. We need patients to be at these things and be involved and help with building the future of digital health because it's going to impact people for years to come. And And, you know, one of the things I really love doing is talking to founders, to CEOs, to people who are building companies that are innovative. And one of the things I want to do with this podcast is highlight these founders, highlight these leaders, talk about what they're building, talk about how, you know, uh, plays into the real world clinical setting, talk about how it makes patients' lives better, how it makes physician lives better. That's really the focus we want to take with Beyond Medicine And, you know, as we kind of grow, as we go along here, we're going to get hopefully some more feedback from our community and from our listeners and grow into the podcast that we want to be. So without further ado, today's podcast is with Dr. Daniel Paul. He's an orthopedic surgeon at Easy Orthopedics, and he's a medical field disruptor by passion. He talks a lot on LinkedIn about problems and insights that he sees in medicine and how to overcome them. And this was actually a really, really fun conversation, and I really, really enjoyed this one. Just before we start the episode, I'd like to give a shout out to our group, beyondmedicinegroup.com. If you want to be part of an exclusive physician community, if you want to be part of the change, if you want access to digital health opportunities, access to a really kind of close-knit, passionate group of people, then join our physician-only group. You do have to verify on the website, submit within 24 to 48 hours, you'll get a response and access to our Slack channel. So I hope to see you there. Without further ado, we'll let Dr. Paul take it away. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Beyond Medicine podcast. I'm with Daniel Paul, orthopedic surgeon and founder of Easy Orthopedics. Daniel is a passionate disruptor of medicine and interested in the business model innovation side of medicine. Dan, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. 
I have been following your LinkedIn posts for quite a while. I've resonated deeply with a lot of your posts. In fact, uh, Kyle and I recently had a podcast where we took an excerpt from one of your LinkedIn posts and, and took a real deep dive on it. And it articulated so well what I think a lot of us in medicine have seen throughout our training, through medical school, through residency. And it, it, I think it was probably the first time that I came across a post that really, I was like, wow, that's it. That's it. That's exactly what I was thinking. That's exactly how I felt all throughout training. That's why I think we're in such a vulnerable position as a community of doctors. And then I reached out to you after that point and wanted to have you on the podcast to not only dive into some of your LinkedIn posts and some of the articulations that you've come up with, but also just to kind of talk about some things that are really problematic in our community. Well, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to talk about everything. Uh, I guess we'll see where it goes. Yeah. So I'm going to start off real quick by reading an excerpt from one of your posts. It's the one on, on existential crisis. And I thought this was a good post to start off with because I literally felt this way <laughs> during my residency training. So I'm going to go ahead and read uh, a quick piece on this and then maybe we'll talk about it. So here it is. It seems that most physicians have an existential crisis at some point in their career. They start asking themselves questions like, what am I doing? Do I even like this anymore? Why did I spend so long studying just to do something that I can't stand anymore? These questions then give way to, I need to change. I can't keep doing this. Or at its worst, I can't step a foot back into the office. I have no data to prove this, but it seems that the physician existential crisis used to happen more commonly at the end of a doctor's career, when they'd get to that point five to 10 years away from their retirement. But at this point, a lot of them can miserably make their way through their final years as a working physician. Now it seems like the existential crisis is happening a lot earlier, to the point where some docs get it only a year or two out of training. I think this is happening because the ecosystem is continually worsening with hospital systems and insurance company takeovers and the loss of autonomy. It has accelerated the formation of burnout and early existential crisis in doctors. So personally, I had my existential crisis last year in residency. <laughs> During the pandemic, getting close to finishing residency, realizing that I'm about to go into practice to do something I don't even enjoy, realizing that I disagreed with almost all of my daily activities as a doctor, <laughs> that I felt like I wasn't helping people and that I felt like my superiors or my colleagues even were part of the problem because they were perpetuating the system that we were in. And so when I would see patients and when I would do certain things, I would feel like, is this really the most effective thing for our patient population? Is this really helping our patients? Is this really effective at all? Or, you know, when we do a lot of the tasks that we get tasked to do during residency that would really burn us out. And, you know, when I'd sit there and I'd be stuck doing my notes till 11 p.m., realizing, wow, I'm destroying my life for this and I, I have no sense of health or well-being I resent everybody in my program. What am I doing with my life? And is this the life I want to lead even after I'm done? This was my existential crisis and it changed my entire career path. And I think that, I think for me, I was lucky enough where I had an escape plan where I could 
I could find a way out, but I think a lot of doctors don't have an escape or have another option where they can go and pursue something else. So they either stay in what they're currently in miserable with no other options. And a lot of times I fear that it corners people and puts people in a position to do something really harmful to themselves or potentially just not get the help that they need. Yeah. So the existential crisis, and of course, you know, I had one, I was midway through my fellowship, which for orthopedic surgery fellowships were only a year. Okay. So four years of medical school, five years of residency, one year of fellowship, and I quit halfway through. And one of the reasons was the existential crisis I had. Now, I think that a lot of it is tied to autonomy. So as docs used to be able to have their own practice and make their own decisions, because look, when you're seeing a patient, there's algorithmic ways to treat somebody, but you have to take into account their social, their economic, and their emotional situation. And that's where the kind of art of medicine comes in. How do I best take care of this person you know, in the environment that they exist in? And that takes time and it requires decisions for you to make between you and the physician. So what ends up happening is you're not really allowed to do that because hospital systems are trying to squeeze everything they can out of you. So you have these short 15 minute visits where half of it is meant for billing. And then the reason why half of it is for billing is because insurance companies don't really want to pay. So you spend all your time dealing with billing and, you know, or charting. I mean, what is the chart really? Is it a note to know what you did with the patient or is it a mechanism to get paid? And I would argue that is more a mechanism to get paid, number one, two, three, four, and five, and then medical legal stuff. And then somewhere down the road, it's, you know, okay, what did we actually do? So you're not able to take care of these patients how you want. You keep getting, these visits keep getting compressed. And I think that contributes to the burnout. And then the feeling of, hey, I don't really like this, that causes the existential crisis of like, that makes you kind of take a step back and say, whoa, like, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing? As my post said, you know, I feel like most physicians hit this at some point in their career. And I feel like it used to be pretty late where maybe the doc's in his 50s or his early 60s. And he's like, ah, I'm done doing this. I don't want to do it anymore. But now we're seeing it like immediately after training or even during training. And I've had a lot of colleagues I've graduated medical school with that are going through some of this right now. And it's crazy because they've only been practicing for a very short period of time. And I think that as the like I said, the ecosystem gets worse. It's just accelerating these existential crises. And that's kind of what happened with me, or you know, at least that was part of the story. But I'm not alone in that. Yeah. I think after, so after people have heard my story or saw that I wasn't even doing any clinical practice anymore, I've had a lot of people reach out to me saying, and I've really been just blown away by this, but a lot of doctors are saying, how do I get out? How do I leave? What other options do I have? How do I do what you're doing? How do I find a company to work with? And unfortunately, even some are even leaving to work for the insurance companies or work in on the administrative side of things that are actually causing some of the problems in the first place, right? I mean, and you can make the argument that it's better to have doctors on that side because maybe they can help make that side of the system better. And maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. But I've realized that a lot of a lot of clinicians just don't see it as being something that's fulfilling anymore. It's not fun to take care of patients. Not maybe not fun is the right word, but it's not fulfilling for them to, you know, do clinical practice. Yeah. So I think at its core, medicine is actually very enjoyable to practice. I'm saying at its core, when it's just you and the patient, you don't have to worry about all this administrative insurance stuff. 
like when you get to spend time with someone and actually help them. And that's why a lot of us or almost all of us went into it. And I still believe that to be true. The problem is you're not really allowed or let practice like that. So you go from something that should be relationship-based, right? Medicine should be relationship-based to more of a transactional-based care where it's like you have these short visits in, out, in, out, where you don't remember the names of the people you're seeing. If they have three problems, I'm sorry, we only have time for one. <laughs> do both your knees hurt? We'll make another appointment. I mean, let's <laughs> do that, you know, sit in the lobby for two hours. So it takes this relationship-based thing where we derive uh, satisfaction and fulfillment. It moves it to this transactional-based care that nobody likes. The physicians don't like it. The patients certainly don't like it. I think that's where a lot of the disconnect is where someone says, I don't like practicing medicine. Really what they might be is they don't like practicing medicine as they are practicing it now. Because there's a big disconnect from how you kind of learn what medicine maybe should be like in medical school to how it's actually carried out and residency it afterwards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So once you felt your existential crisis when you were in training and you left, what was... Like, what was something that helped you relieve that feeling? Like, what was it that you went on to do that was the solution to that? Well, you know, life is often messy. So, you know, becoming a physician, you're such on a clear-cut path. So when you disrupt that path, it's really strange. As, you know, you're aware, and I'm aware too, and other people are, is you go from grinding, 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 to all of a sudden, like, you quit. I mean, you're in a void. You're in, like, a void of nothing which you haven't experienced in a long time. So what helped me navigate through that, I think, is some of that time in that void to just kind of think, take time, reestablish what's important and what's not important, and just kind of recenter myself away from just all the noise. And once that happened, I was able to kind of move out of it and moving in a different direction. But it was really out of a place of desperation, right? I mean, nobody really forms a business because things are good. You form it because things aren't good. There's a problem either where you're working or like there's some problem you're trying to solve or something's not going right. Yeah. You know, so you form a business and that's kind of what I did with my practice, which is a new business model for delivering orthopedics. And so, you know, I wish I could say I had some grand plan or anything like that, but it was really just going into the void, spending time and flying by the seat of my pants until I kind of figured the way out of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And a lot of businesses, the best businesses are formed out of necessity. I really do believe that. And another interesting point, and I think something that's really important is that, you know, sitting in the void and actually having time to think about, and I agree, you said having an existential crisis actually can be a good thing because it can make you really be honest with yourself and question what you want to do, how you want to do it, what you want your life to look like. And in, in training, in the training process, the timeline of a doctor, there's no space in any of that process to really step back and think about what you actually want to do. Like your grind, first year of medical school all the way to residency, it's a constant grind. You know, you're always one step after the next, after the next, and you're just trying to make it to the next step all the time. And so for me personally, like once I left residency, I was in a little bit of a void as well for like a three month period where I just, I didn't know what direction I wanted to focus my energy. And that period of time was like pure reflection, pure figuring out what's the best way to use my time. And it was scary. Like it, it was a scary time because I didn't, you know, like there's a lot of fear and uncertainty in that time, but 
I think that I was lucky because having that experience, which I think a lot of people don't have, allowed me to figure out where I want to put all my energy, what I want to actually do, and like helped me realize, well, I don't think at this point in my life, I want to do clinical medicine. I don't think that's what I'm really excited about or passionate about. It's not what gets me up in the morning. And, you know, for a lot of, I think a lot of people don't end up getting to that kind of insight because they don't put themselves in an uncomfortable enough position to be able to figure that out because everything's laid out because you have a path and right away you're, you got that paycheck waiting for you and you take it because it, it's comfortable and you've been waiting a long time for it. Yeah. So I do think that the existential crisis can be a very good thing. And in, in my case, it was, it sounds like for you, it was as well. I mean, like to make it through medical training, you have to be so stubborn. Like I thought I was one of the most stubborn people I knew. And then I went to med school. I'm like, oh, everybody's stubborn. Like you just have to be. Yeah. And um, it takes a lot of force to kind of get you off that path, you know? And I think that existential crisis is a real powerful force. So it can do that, but they're not fun to go through. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of uncertainty. But if you kind of listen to it, it it'll allow you to kind of reconstruct your life. And usually always for the better, at least in my experience. Um, and I think that can be a positive thing. You just have to go through a cloud of darkness and uncertainty to figure it out. And going back to what you said, that there's not a lot of time in between everything. That is just for, for those who aren't in it, it is just so true. So I'll give you an example, right? You finish medical school. I think I finished in May. Residency starts in July, right? So all that time, you're basically moving and getting ready for this like crazy undertaking you're about to do. And when I finished residency, you know, it finishes... In July, my board exam is like a week later, you know, so the month and a half before I'm just studying like crazy. Then three weeks later, the fellowship starts in a different place. So you're just going like grinding and going crazy. And then you have a week to, you know, take this exam and then you immediately have to move. You know, you would think after five years of training, you'd have some time to just sit, like relax for a minute and collect yourself. But that's just not there. And uh, even when I was in fellowship, you know, I think I quit like January. So I went about halfway through and I think it was in December. I hadn't had a job yet, right? A job to start the following September. The attendings at the time were like, well, what are you doing? What are you going to do? Like, if you don't get a job, like what's going to happen to you? You're just going to do locums and you won't be able to pass your course. And it's like, well, my career is all down the toilet because I don't have a job like nine months before (laughs) I'm about to start. And that was a real sentiment. So we kind of get fear kind of makes a lot of our decisions. And I don't think they're good decisions to take these positions that we probably shouldn't take signing the non-competes, which we should definitely not do and kind of force keeping ourselves in misery. Yeah. I have a theory. I think everybody should maybe take a locums job right out of residency because it gives you time to start like a, you can start working, making some money and then also have time, a little bit of extra time and freedom in that early stage to actually try out different things, maybe explore if a, a side, you know, a private practice on the side is worth starting and eventually scaling up to like a full business. But I don't know. I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. You know, I think locums can be flexible. I don't think there's anybody who does a locums job where they're like, oh, I really like the time I spend doing the locums work. So mm-hmm. I think it just, it's not a bad idea. I think it depends on your personal situation. If you have a family or young kids, you may not want to be kind of leaving all the time. But it's definitely something to keep in your back pocket that you can certainly do. And I think it's fairly financially lucrative. So you can kind of exist like that for a while. I don't think it's a bad idea. 
I think it's certainly, you know, if you're in that boat, it's worth considering. But, you know, a lot of people, they just want to get out and they just want to get that job somewhere. Yeah. And so they, they do that. But that's that. so dangerous. Yeah. It is dangerous. I mean, it, these, I think we're used to in our mind expecting that these jobs are stable, right? Because we see the older docs have been like, oh, I've been at the same practice for 30 years and now I'm retiring. Or they move once, right? That is just not the situation today. I mean, 70% of physicians are employed by hospitals and they're constantly conglomerating and fighting with each other. I mean, you have something like Optum Health, which is owned by United Healthcare Group. That's the largest employer of physicians. These like jobs aren't stable. I mean, they're not stable. I just even look back to my residency. I think half our attendings kind of came and left while I was there, which is yeah. a lot. And then, you know, I talked to a local orthopedic surgeon where I live. Now, I don't normally like talking to orthopedic surgeons because they're too arrogant for me. <laughs> so even though I am one, you either get it's a roll of the dice. You either get the coolest guy in the world, guy girl in the world, or they're just like a complete narcissist. And I just don't like taking the chance. Anyways, he was working for a practice and he's in his fifties, two generalists, and it got bought by some large company. And I got bought by another company, right? He's working there building his practice. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden they wanted to renegotiate his contract with a fifty, I'll say five zero percent pay cut. So to make exactly half of what he was making. So he said, screw this and he quit and he was starting his own private practice. And I don't think people realize like how like ridiculously unstable these seemingly stable jobs are. And then you sign a non-compete. So then when the thing blows up, well, what do you do? You can get out of them in a lot of cases, but it's going to cost you in the neighborhood of tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah. Nurses don't sign non-competes. If you ask a nurse if they sign a non-compete, they would laugh in your face. Same thing with an x-ray tech. They would never do that. But for some reason, we do that. And I think it's because we've been conditioned by medical training mm-hmm. to just like, accept the beatings. Yeah. I mean, if any sort of creativity or ability to take risk that you have going into training, there's no doubt it will get stomped out. And that's what happened to me. I got in trouble a lot as an intern, not because of like making medical mistakes. It was because of these system issues that I'd see. And I'd say, hey, this isn't a good way to do it. We should do it like this. Like, I just got stomped out into the ground. So by the time I was a second year, I wasn't doing that anymore. And like, it creates so many meetings. You're just like, I don't want to make any waves. I just want to get through. And you carry that mentality through and it's a detriment to your success later on, even though we're all like that. Yeah. So a lot of doctors won't take any business risks at all, but at the same time, take really dumb financial risks or social risks. So yeah. it's, it's just kind of, it's kind of a crazy thing. Yeah. I mean, if you think about anybody who has changed the world, like any innovator, Steve Jobs, anybody who's really made an impact in the world, these are by nature disagreeable and disruptive, quote unquote, disruptive individuals. Individuals who will look at something, see a problem, say this is either not right or we can do it better. And they go on and they do something about whatever it is that they want to solve. But in medicine, think about like what percentage of people are actually of that phenotype that you just described, maybe a little bit, like we'll say disruptive. I probably fit in that category as well. And think about what happens to these individuals throughout our training. They're beaten down to a pulp, (laughs) smacked on the wrist so many times that they are just now by the time, if they do finish, they just don't have that creative confidence to go out and change healthcare or change the world where they otherwise might've had that in them before. 
And so like, imagine this, we're creating a whole class of professionals that just don't know how to go out and change the world anymore. And so maybe that's contributing to some of the stagnancy that we're having in healthcare because all of the people that might have come along and made a difference in the healthcare system or might have changed the world with an innovative idea or a challenging idea to this current system are no longer confident enough to actually go and do that. Yeah, I think that's a good point because the problem is people like you and me, at least as we go through training, we come up with these good ideas and like we get stomped out so hard that the amount of stress and strain it puts on you to keep being like that is so high that you just let it go. Because you have the only way you can exist. I mean, when you're working in a job where they say, we don't like you and we can get rid of you and it'll end your career, which by the way, you don't have much of a recourse to, you know, you have to comply. So you do comply. You're so used to complying, you continue to do that as you get out. And I think it creates a lot of problems. So the only way that we kind of probably both of us, I think are similar, how we kind of got our creativity back is by exiting the system. And once I exited, it all kind of came back and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm myself again. And I think that's kind of the space you need to exist in to actually affect change, you know, by being outside of it. I mean, look, the United States is like the richest country, like in the history of the world. Okay. So think about that wealth that exists in the United States. I think it's what 18% of the GDP goes to healthcare. So there's a lot of people making a lot of money off essentially the status quo. There's large forces in place that do not want things to change because they're just profiting immensely off of it. So it's hard to go against that grain. These institutions are large. They have lobbying arms and you need to kind of, you can't bite them while you're inside of it. At least that's my opinion. Or if you can, it'll be at such a high personal cost that you won't be able to continue. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I I also feel like it's a bit of our own community that perpetuates the culture that we're currently in, you know, it, it almost becomes popular to think in a certain way to see things. I don't know. It's such a, it's such a weird thing for me to describe the process of training and the process of being a doctor and then being part of the status quo as a physician. It's just been something that I've, I've really had struggled to wrap my mind around. Well, yeah, but you know, there's a lot of people that want like I said, we've lost our ability to take risks and think creatively. So we're, we think that this is the only way to do it. And I think when somebody comes up and tries to say there's other ways, the kind of hive mentality keeps them down. So there's a lot of momentum in that, you know, from, from other physicians. I mean, other physicians can be some of the greatest people you'll meet, but we're people, right? So also some of the nastiest people you meet. We get a high rate of narcissism and arrogance. And, uh, you know, you have people in these powerful positions, um, in academic positions, and they, they had to work their way up the ladder to get there and they want to keep it. So I think there's a lot of bit of power, you know, of exercising of power kind yeah. of over people that don't, can't do or say anything about it. Cause if you're a resident, I mean, you can't say anything really. I mean, technically you can, but you can't really. So, but no, there's a lot of physicians that, you know, if I were to tell people I would start to practice like I started, I would bet all of them would tell me it was a bad idea. It would never work, you know, and they yeah. would have been, they would have been wrong. Yeah. I see what you're saying. It is hard to articulate. And I think there is a lot of momentum, even from physicians to just like, nobody is happy, but like, they don't know what to do about it. So they just yeah. like fight with them among themselves. Yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. And actually in orthopedics, you see this a lot where 
you'll have two joint replacement surgeons, right, in town, separate groups. And like these guys hate each other, like almost all the time. And uh, they do the same thing. And it's like, meanwhile, they're fighting with each other and bickering. Medicare is like cutting their reimbursements like year after year. So it's like we just fight amongst ourselves. We're very individualistic, usually intelligent people. And it's hard for us to kind of come together in any meaningful way. Yeah. It's funny. When I was in residency, I used to like early on, I like sometimes I would tell people what I wanted to do after residency. I made the mistake once of telling an attending that, oh, I don't really plan on practicing clinical medicine. I'm, I'm going to go and, you know, work in the business side of things and try to solve problems on that end of things. And she looked at me like I was the worst human being on earth because I didn't want to just do patient care. Like I wasn't like, she looked at me like I was like, a, I don't know. I just had this feeling of judgment. And I was like, you know what? I swear to God, I'm never telling anybody what I'm doing in medicine ever again. <laughs> well, she saw that you had a plan to get out of Shawshank. She's still in there, you know, breaking big rocks and smaller rocks. And I think there was likely some uh, jealousy. Maybe. I don't know, but it just made me feel like shit. I still remember that day. Mm, that's terrible. Yeah. And it's crazy because like we need people out not only seeing patients, but we need people on the other side of things, developing technology, working with big business, fighting for physician rights and trying to make a better system because the reason we're in this mess in the first place is because doctors decided not to care about business. <laughs> yeah. And I think the truth of the matter is like, look, like I said, 18% of the GDP, like the richest country in the history of the world. If you don't focus on the business part of your practice, somebody else will do it for you. And you probably won't like it. It'll be some MBA who doesn't practice medicine, doesn't really know or understand what you're doing and you'll be miserable. So like, in my opinion, it makes sense for you or anybody practicing to be the master of their own business. You know, then you could control it. Otherwise, like I said, somebody will do it for you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree hundred percent. I want to dive into this other topic real quick as well. Burnout. And this was another one of your posts that I wanted to also share. I think it's really interesting. So here it is. Burnout doesn't happen all at once. It happens little by little. Things slowly get worse as the joy of practicing diminishes. Inevitably, when it finally hits the tipping point, it forces the physician to look for a way out. Some are close enough to retirement to push through for a few more years. Others are creative enough to find a way of supporting themselves outside of practicing in the system. But sadly, others choose a much darker path. We get so brainwashed by health insurance and hospital systems that we think that there's only one way to practice medicine, the way they tell us to. This is really only a modern dilemma that we all think is permanent. It only exists because we keep it existing by working for hospital systems and by billing insurances. You can practice without any hospital system or insurance company involvement. You will be immediately happier. There are a lot of naysayers who will tell you that, that it won't work. They are wrong. It does. Me and thousands of other practicing physicians are proof. So I love that because you talked about a problem and you offered a solution. And direct primary care, direct specialty care. I think I love that. I've been, I've been talking with leaders like Dr. Paul Thomas, Jeff Gold, people that are, you know, really some of the early pioneers in this space, at least recently. And I think it is the only way out, to be honest, because it gives full autonomy back to the person giving care. 
And it also gives the patient autonomy because they get to choose who they want to be their service provider. But on the topic of burnout, a lot of these things I think are very on point. It doesn't happen all at once. And it's it's those intangible things that I think are really what kind of are the icing on the cake that really fully burns someone out. So yeah. what are your thoughts? With burnout, like it doesn't happen all at once. Like there's things that you do in your life that you enjoy, right? That keep you happy and healthy, right? Whether that's how you eat, you know, your family, spending time with your kids, activities you like to do, those sorts of things that, you know, before you started medicine that you're like, these are the things that I like to do and, you know, make you happy. And then with medicine, it's just so busy. You're putting so much into it that it starts to chip away at those things. So maybe you used to like working out every day. Well, maybe now it's every other day. And instead of maybe an hour, maybe it's a half hour. Okay, it's taking a little bit of that. Maybe you like to always spend dinner with your family and that's important. Well, now you're missing a few of them. You can't quite go to all of them. So it's taking a little bit of that. And, um, you know, maybe you like to travel. Well, you haven't traveled in a few years. Taking a little bit of that too. And these things on their own aren't terrible. But when you add them all up, it really takes a lot. And you don't really realize it because it's taking little pieces at a time. And so I think when the burnout comes, you essentially lost all these things, parts of you that you used to like to do, and they've been replaced with medicine practicing in the system, which for most people is extremely unenjoyable, most physicians. And like we said, that's because of systems issues. That's not because of the practice of medicine itself. And you kind of get this burnout where you don't want to do it anymore. It's not fun. It's It's taken... You know, we all have a tolerance of what something can take from us. And once we hit that, I think that's when you get burnout. And that's different for everybody. I mean, you do have some people who are so one-dimensional, but they literally can't. All they do is work. And that's, you know. And then, like I said, if you keep going, like work literally becomes you, your identity, everything you do to the detriment sometimes of those other things, even to some point where some people lose their like families over it, where they get divorced, their kids don't talk to them. So now you had a job to support your family because you spent too much time at your job. You've lost the thing that you were trying to support. Or in the worst of situations or the darkest of situations, the physician will die by suicide. And that mm-hmm. rate is pretty high. I think it's about double the normal population. It's one of the highest of any profession. Yeah. And I mean, you can see why. They can't find a way out. They've just been crushed for so long that yeah, that's what happens. And it's really scary because we have a high rate of completion of suicides I think someone asked uh, the average time for a depressed physician when they decide to commit suicide and when they do it, or I should say die by suicide, is about 10 minutes. So there's like uh, there's a point of a physician being extremely depressed and they say, they just get a spontaneous burst of energy and they're like, I'm just going to die by suicide. That's like, a t- that happens within 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, so it's extremely scary. And, uh, you know, it's it's definitely to be taken seriously. Yeah. Um, and these are all, almost all byproducts of just the way that physicians are forced to practice, which yeah. is why things like direct primary care, which by the way, I use personally for myself and I can't say enough good things about, yeah. are really, I think, the future of where things need to go. And I would consider myself a direct specialty care yeah. because I don't contract with any insurance companies and I don't set foot inside a hospital, nor do I work with any of them. So yeah. I work strictly on cash bases. But yeah, it's unfortunate and there's such a disconnect. You know, there's no amount of administrative uh, pizza parties or yoga classes that can fix right. that. These are right. systemic issues. Right. Yeah. And add that on top of all the other things that just are like destroying your health, like the sleep deprivation you know, on top of everything else, especially in training, the overworking, the exhaustion, the loss of social structure. 
all of these other things on top of that, like that are also just compiling and leading people down that path. Like I really feel bad. Like I feel bad for residents. Like, man, it's so bad. It's so bad how residents are expected to work so much, sacrifice so much, be on high alert constantly and just be expected. Like this is just expected to be the norm. You know, like I want to have kids one day. If they say I want to be a doctor, I want to be like, okay, yeah, you should go and do it. Now I don't want, like, I don't want to have to convince them not to do it because I, I've gone through the whole training process. And like, I have friends, my, a lot of my friends are still, and you know, I'm still hearing all the time, like, wow, this has just gotten so bad. This is terrible. Like it's gone to complete shit. We're all depressed. I don't think you can even find a single resident that doesn't have something like that to say. And why are we still allowing this type? I, I know that some of the older generation docs say that we complain too much and that we are entitled and that we think that uh, we're soft because we don't work a hundred hour shifts or we have restrictions. But I don't know. I don't, I don't buy that because I think that the amount of pressure that we're under now with technology, with, you know, with the EMRs, with all these other things that we got to deal with on top of everything else. I don't think it's a fair comparison and we got to change something with our training, like hundred percent, something has to happen. Yeah. You know, I think that the older doctors this mentality of I went through it, so you need to go through it too, which I've always hated that because that's like saying, well, I got my arm chopped off so you can get your arm chopped off too. Like it doesn't logically make sense. So, I mean, I've been told you're not going to learn anything only working 80 hours a week, which was obviously not true at all. You know, and a lot of them complained when these work hour restrictions went into place, you know, because they're bitter because they did it. They want us to do it. And yeah. look, we're still working 80 hours is a lot. I mean, you know, I've had times where I've almost logged that just a Monday through Friday without even doing any overnight shifts. You know, the cultures of training are tough. And it, I think it depends a lot on the culture of the program. So I think when you get to these Northeastern programs, like a lot of them are really toxic, especially like, let's say, in New York City. I do think some other ones, like I trained in the Midwest and my residency program was, I found to be pretty good. Although I did work my butt off and all those that you say are, are definitely true. You know, they've tried to introduce some accountability, like things are really, really bad for residents to complain. And like, it's just so hard when you can lose your job or get pushed out to yeah. really get any positive change. I mean, the things that were going on were pretty egregious. So it's just a slow moving industry that you know, if you're like the dominoes fall in the wrong direction and you're on the other side of it. As a resident, I mean, it is just hell. Yeah. So it, it's a tough spot to be in, you know, as compared to, let's say, I don't know, a PA or NP who doesn't do that. Well, if the job's terrible, we'll just go do a different job somewhere else. Right. See, I don't understand why we can't have that option. Like, why can't it be normalized to just leave residency? Or like, why can't everybody just do what I did? Like, I actually want more doctors to leave residency because there's, I know there is a segment of, because they've all reached out to me. There's a segment of the population of residents that just don't want to be a clinical doctor, want to leave residency, but they don't, like, I'm surprised. So many people don't know you can get your medical license and practice medicine. Why is that never something that we've ever been told that you can get your license after one year in some states, two years in other states, and be a general practitioner? Number one, why is that frowned upon to even have that conversation? Why is board certification the only... I guess for sur obviously for surgery or anything like that, definitely that you got to finish residency. But as a general practitioner, 
why is that not like something that we can talk about to have an open conversation about and say, this is an acceptable path to becoming a, a doctor, a licensed doctor? Well, I think it goes against the grain. You know, you got to remember as a resident, they're getting paid by CMS, right, for you. So the residency programs get paid per resident per year. I think it's on the order of, you would have to look this up, but it's like probably like 100,000, 120,000, depends on the program, something like that, right? So half of that goes to you as the resident. Let's say let's say the resident gets paid 60 plus benefits, let's say 90,000, right? There's no resident taking home a $90,000 paycheck, but with benefits, just give them some grace. That still means they're making like $40,000 off of it, you know? And they'll say, well, it's training, whatever. But if you look at the cost of replacing you with at least one PA, if not two or more, I mean, the cost is insane. The cost difference comes into the millions of dollars, you know, over the course of a, for an entire residency, it's, it's millions and millions of dollars probably per year. So, you know, you're a commodity. They want to keep you there. They want to get the exact amount out of you as much as they can get out. Uh, I think that you'll see hospital takeovers. They fight over residents. I mean, like you're, you're a hot commodity. They're hard to come by and yeah. they can save a hospital a lot of money. I mean, you know, you're stuck. <laughs> so yeah. they, they don't tell you about these other options likely because they don't want you to leave, right? Yeah. If you knew that you could leave midway through residency and get your license and just have a nice career somewhere, like I think more people would do it instead of this, oh, you have to finish, you have to do this. If you yeah. don't finish, you're not going to be able to get board certified and no one will talk to you ever again. I mean, even with board certification, like if you're not working with a hospital system or you're not taking insurance, like you don't really need it. And um, I don't think it really matters. That's my yeah. personal opinion. Yeah. I, well, I think we over glorify a lot of the certifications because people obviously go through a lot of work to become board certified or have, you know, extra degrees. And so, you know, I can understand like people wanting to showboat a little bit or say I'm the expert in this or that, but medical training is you get your MD after four years of medical school and you have nothing to show for it afterwards, unless you've done some amount of residency training to, to be a licensed doctor, right? At least one year in some States, two in others. But why is it? And if we're going to use the argument of like the protectants and blah, 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 we have NPs and PAs that are practicing medicine after two years of basic training. You know, there has to be a path that allows for exiting at certain stages of the process. Like there should be a path where you can exit right out of medical school where your degree isn't completely useless, a path where you can exit at any point during residency training where your degree doesn't become completely useless and you're not completely out of a job or don't have some other way to do something. We need to put these things in place. So like there's exit points because that'll even out the power differential. If, if people didn't feel like they had to put up with egregious standards just because they were to get fired or if they, if something were to happen, they would be completely out of luck and never be able to do anything with their degree again in their life. I think having that in place would solve a lot of these power differential problems. Yeah, I think so. I think they would be good. I mean, you're talking about building off ramps at various points. The problem is the people that would need to build the off ramps are the people that would lose by building them, you know? So coming at least financially. So it's going to be a tough thing to, I think, ever get going is, you know, to convince these powers to be that want to keep you in the program that, hey, maybe you should let us out of the program. 
at some point. Like, I mean, they can never stop you from leaving, right? They, yeah. They can't stop you from leaving. But, you know, I think it would also be good for them to know that if they don't respect the people that they have working for them or treat them like human beings, that they may leave. And uh, I think that would be healthy for these programs as well. And probably have them treat their uh, residents, you know, fellows a little bit better. That person doesn't have to be here. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. I went on a little bit of a tangent, but I get really worked up about some of these things because I've, I've felt a lot of these. I felt like I wanted to get off the ramp at various stages in my training. Like I wanted to get off right after medical school. But I knew like I just invested $300,000 into my degree. Why would I, you know, why would I get off now and, you know, have a useless degree? And so I was like, okay, I'll do it. I'll do one year of training and at least get my license. So I'm not like, so it's not completely useless. So I did one year and then I was like, okay, you know, let me do another year. Maybe I can tolerate this for one more year. Maybe I can finish. So I did another year, but still like the cost just kept getting higher and higher. And I wanted to get off earlier. Like I wanted, I literally wanted to just be done with it, but I had no, I had no way to do that. And I saw a lot of, more than you'd think, a lot of other people who felt the same way, but also couldn't ever do anything about it. Yeah. It's a tough, it's a tough spot to be in, especially with these loans and everything. You're kind of, they know you're stuck, right? That's how they are able to treat you so badly in some cases, right? Now, there are really good residency programs where they, they don't treat the residents like that. Mm-hmm. And um, if any prospective medical students are listening to this and you're going into residency, when you go on your residency interview, take note of how happy the people are when you're interviewing. And if all of them are happy, it's probably a good program. If they're all miserable, then don't go there because you are not going to be an outlier. You will be miserable too. <laughs> yeah, there's truth to that. Yeah. That's a good, <laughs> my, that's, that's my rule of thumb. Yeah, it's tough I, though, man. You're trying to these institutions have been around for a while. They make a lot of money off of you. You know, you 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 really are stuck. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So, what what is it? How is it that you're able to articulate a lot of these things through your posts? Because do you spend a lot of time thinking about these things? Um, I guess so. I don't know. I just kind of sit down and write them. I like LinkedIn because uh, I, I did Twitter for a bit, but. I can't really express what I want in 240 characters. And it's so toxic that I was on it for a while doing okay. And then somebody called me a Nazi. Well, they didn't really call me a Nazi. They just, <laughs> oh my they, God, man. I'm Jewish also, by the way, but they would just, they oh just said, I, I probably would have ratted out Anne Frank that I have a lot of armbands in my closet. So I was like, oh All my right, God. maybe enough of Twitter. And then I kind of pivoted to LinkedIn, which is like, okay, I can actually express my ideas. It's a professional platform and it, it's been much better for me. But I just have a lot more time to think about things. And it's kind of my passion. And also build a new system. I, I don't think you can fix what we have. There's too many people making too much money off it. So you just need to build a new system with like direct primary care and direct specialty care. 100%. So it's a lot of these musings and thoughts I've had. And now that I'm really unconstrained, right? Like I'm not going to get in trouble at work. Like I'm my own boss. Like yeah. what are you going to do to me? You know, they just kind of come out and they're just kind of general musings that I have. You know, and I get my ideas by reading a lot, listening to other podcasts, and just watching, you know, the ecosystem around me, watch hospital takeovers, watch these guys get pushed out of their jobs, talk to my friends who are also physicians who are like, hate their job after like two years. I don't know. There's just so many things to choose from. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Especially, I I definitely agree with that. We're not going to fix this healthcare system and it's better to just build a new one. 
And I think the direct care movement, whether that's DPC or specialty care, direct care, I think that is the path forward. I think that is the only chance we have at a real positive healthcare system. And I encourage everybody to really explore that as an option. And even, you know, medical students or residents thinking about really um, pursuing a career, you should definitely, there's so many resources out there, you know, like people are afraid of the business side of things, but there's so many resources in our community that it can be done. And you don't need an MBA. I just want to make that really clear. MBA is good if you want to make business connections or you want to work in some large corporate structure, you know, but for small business, I really don't, I don't have one. I think if you look at these extremely successful entrepreneurs, they don't have them either. So a lot of them didn't even finish college. I don't, you don't need one in my opinion. Yeah. And I agree. I don't have an MBA, but I work in a, I work in a health tech startup and I feel like most of the things you're going to learn is going to be on the, you know, through experience and through resources and, and talking to mentors, people that can help you. Right. It's human relations, not just crunching a bunch of numbers and coming up with, you know, stuff that's secondary, I believe to the human uh, relation part of it. Um, exactly. But yeah, DPC is kind of, eh. You know, there's this LinkedIn post we had where a medical student asked a question and everybody's saying, hey, you got to do DPC. And, and he was very against it. And then when we found out more about it, it's because he asked one of his professors at school but told him it wouldn't work. You know, yeah. but it, his professor at school, well, well, a physician has no idea. How does he know? He's, he's in academic medicine. Yeah. So, you know, no one's in training talking about these extra sort of like other ways to do it. You kind of have to find them out for yourself. Yep. Yeah, I totally agree. Where can where can uh, our listeners find you, connect with you, read more, read some of your posts, and uh, just learn more? Um, so yeah, if you want to connect with me or find out more about what I'm doing, my website's easyorthopedics.com. That's kind of my business practice. Um, I've got a YouTube channel as well, and then on LinkedIn, Daniel Paul. That's P A U L L M D or Easy Orthopedics. Uh, you'll kind of find a lot of the stuff content that I'm generating. Cool. All right, Daniel, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Love to have this conversation with you. And uh, hopefully some of our listeners can connect with you and follow you on LinkedIn and, and your other places. Well, thanks for having me. This episode is also brought to you by White Coats NFT. Yes, you heard right. Um, before you jump to any conclusions or say NFTs are a scam or what they are, Uh, This is actually just a membership, a transferable membership uh, using NFT technology. And it's access to a physician community on Discord. And it's all about Web3 and projects and things like that. And if you want to become part of the White Coats movement, uh, you can head over to whitecoatsnft.com, check it out, learn a little bit about our project and join us in the Discord.